submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. We're finishing up our four-week mini-series on marriage this morning called Happily Ever After. And this sermon is designed particularly to provide a lot of practical application based on the things that we've already studied from this passage that was just read, Ephesians chapter 5, as well as some of the other texts that we've looked at. And really, there's one word that came into my mind as I was thinking this week about this sermon as it relates to all of our marriages in the room today. And the word is disconnect. Disconnect seems to be a word that oftentimes describes almost every marriage, whether you're both Christians, whether one is a Christian and one isn't, whether you're not following Jesus, if you're not sure where you are spiritually, all of us go through times in our marriage where we feel disconnected. And what we want to do this morning is ask and hopefully answer the question, how can our marriages reconnect? How can we experience joy and hope of reconnection and of growth together in our lives? That's our topic today. So we're wrapping up this series, as I mentioned, and our goal today is a little different than it is on a given normal Sunday here at Christ Church. We spent time expositing what God's word says about marriage in prior weeks. And so I want to wrap up the series today by basically devoting this entire next few minutes, this teaching time to practical application of how to grow in our marriages. This is going to flow out of the biblical passages that we've looked at, especially what Katie just read, Ephesians chapter 5. Here are some of the questions we want to think about. How do we overcome the relational disconnect that is caused by our sin and selfishness in the most important human relationship we will have, our marriages? How do we practically and realistically love one another? How do we help each other in the process of sanctification or in the process of becoming more like Jesus, of growing in holiness? How do we more and more mirror and reflect the gospel in our marriages? Because Ephesians 5 says that the mystery of marriage is that it's actually a picture of Jesus' love for his church. It's a picture of the gospel. So that's what we're going to tackle today. Now we've seen that the purpose of marriage is that it is intended to be a committed companionship that grows us in the gospel. 
And yet, because of the pain and the selfishness and the sin that we bring to our marriages, that both husbands and wives bring to marriage because of the brokenness that we bring to this relationship, we're always in process. And last week, we thought about the process of marriage, and particularly two movements, moving over time from suspicion into trust and moving from selfishness into love. Those are two movements that need to be happening slowly but surely and steadily if our marriages are going to be growing in maturity and in health, and if we as individuals are becoming more wholehearted, more of the people that God intends us to be. So that's where we've been, and again today, I want to simply ask two questions. How do we do those things? How practically do we build trust, and how do we build love? Now, let me just say also that there are some in this room who have been married much longer than I've been married, and one of the great things about the body of Christ is you younger folks, if you're, if you're single, if you're engaged, if you have a girlfriend or a boyfriend, or if you're young in your marriage, I would encourage you to seek out wise counsel from those who are ahead of you in the walk of faith and ask them some of these questions, talk to them, be open with them and seek their help. Uh, That's one of the beautiful things about Jesus's body, but I want this to be practical. Uh, So there's a million things we could say, but I'm going to limit, limit it to a few under each heading that perhaps are the most crucial. So here's the main idea. Okay. Here's how I want to break it down for you this morning. Healthy marriages intentionally and continually work to build trust and love. Those are the two big ideas we talked about last time. Healthy marriages continually work to build trust and love. And so here's the two points. How do we build trust? How to build trust is point one, and point two is how to build love. How to build trust, how to build love. Okay, first, how to build trust. Last time we talked about moving from suspicion to trust in marriage. That's part of the process of health. We saw from Galatians that all of us bring what the Apostle Paul calls the works of the flesh to every relationship we have, but especially to our marriage relationships. Sin patterns are going to impact and affect our marriages. And one way that they do so is by generating suspicion. And I'm, last time we asked some diagnostic questions to help us discern where we are in the process and if we're moving in the right direction or not in our particular relationships. So how do we build trust? How do we move forward in that process? If marriage is one flesh, which Genesis 2 tells us it is, if our companionship is that closely linked with our spouse, how does that union of trust show up in our lives through more and more connected trustworthiness to and for each other? Okay, I want to give you three practical ways and play those out a little bit as we move into this. Okay, so how to build trust. First, be honest. Be honest. That seems basic, but it's actually quite difficult. Honesty is a practice that is essential in the working out of the oneness that defines the marriage relationship. It's a basic building block of trust. Without honesty... The sharing of accurate information, we cannot function in a trusting, committed relationship. I have a friend who's a physical therapist, and he told me one time about seeing patients who have had strokes or something else very significant. And frequently, he told me a stroke 
causes a breakdown in communication, right, between the brain and the rest of the body. So physical therapists have to help patients reestablish communication between those body parts so that they can learn to function again. The automatic coordination that most of us take for granted can be a devastating thing if it is lost. And I think sometimes our marriages function as if we've suffered a stroke. We lose the ability to coordinate our lives and move forward together. We no, we no longer know what is going on with the other. And therefore, every effort to move along the path of life together leads to a stumble or a fall or a painful collision. So, so honesty is an essential building block of trust. So how? How can you and your particular marriages grow in the practice of honesty? Let me give you a few practical things to grip on. Uh, First, confess your sins and failures. On the one hand, you have to be honest about you. A major step in honesty is owning your own personal shortcomings. Now think about this. If the Bible is true, which we as followers of Jesus believe that it is, and the Bible says that we all bring works of the flesh, we all bring sinful dispositions and habits into marriage, it's absolutely basic that those things are going to affect our spouse. And if we're going to practice trust together, we must be honest when we're offending or sinning against our husband or our wives. If you don't do that, you can't really move forward in other areas either. When you're confronted in your marriage with your failures and your sin, confess them and don't defend. Healthy relationships, especially marriages, have the humility of approachability. They have the humility of approachability. Being honest means acknowledging where you have failed, especially when confronted with it by your spouse, and not immediately defending yourself using your relational nuclear defense system, right, like we talked about last week. Not immediately shifting into self-justification mode, but being honest and open about your own shortcomings, particularly against your spouse. That's one way to be honest, confess your sins and failures. You have to be honest about yourself. But secondly, you have to be honest about the other, about your spouse, You should address areas of concern or hurt with your spouse. This is really important. Not only should we be practicing confession in our own lives and not defensiveness, but we should address the sins of our spouse and stop being afraid to deal with them. Ephesians chapter 4 tells us that Christians are people who speak the truth in love. We speak the truth in love to one another. And some of you, some of you avoid, avoid doing this probably because you don't like fighting or because you've tried to do it in the past. You've tried to deal with something in your spouse that is offensive or hurtful or damaging to your relationship, and it has gone very, very poorly. Or perhaps you're really bad at addressing things. You're like a bull in a china shop. You don't have manners. You're not gentle at all. And so in your relationship, this has just stopped happening. There's issues that you know and that she knows or that he knows are bothersome and harmful, but you just don't address them because in the past if you'd address them, it's just gone south quickly. I want to encourage you, friends, this morning to begin practicing addressing failures, hurts, and issues with the other. Now, I'm not saying you should go home today on Mother's Day and uh, drag out every grievance and decimate your spouse. 
Don't like take out your machine gun relationally and just blow people away. That's not what I'm saying. But you can't just sweep your hurts under some inner rug and refuse to deal with it if you're going to grow in trust. I'm not saying you should immediately have to have a conversation. Maybe wait until you're connected. Don't try and do it when you're getting the kids ready for school in the morning or when you're both really tired. Timeliness, it matters, right? But, but part of honesty is owning your own shortcomings and also seeking to be the agent of the Spirit's sanctification in your spouse by being willing to speak the truth and love to them and address their hurts and failures in the ways that they need to rest in Jesus. So those are two ways to be honest. Here's a second way to grow in trust other than being honest. Identify what causes relational disconnection and therefore less trust. Let me just give you three examples of things that might cause relational disconnection. The first one is from from my wife. She gave me this one. Um, She gave me a lot of this. Most of the good stuff, anything that's good is probably from her and not from me. But this, this is something that Marianne helped me with. Um, one way that you can identify where there's relational disconnection in your marriage is by talking about if you even have the same end or the same goals in mind for your relationship. You might have talked, you probably hopefully talked about that in your premarital counseling, maybe in your early life, maybe when you've had crisis moments in your marriage, you've talked about that. But it's it's very important to to have unity on what you envision your, not just your marriage, but your family being. You know, and the way we grew up, what we saw with our own parents, all those things affect that. And so it's important for you to have those discussions and gain unity. If you have a similar foundation, but you're building very, very different houses, right? One of you is building a, a four-story mansion and the other one is building like a, a villa on the beach. It's not going to look well. It's not going to go well because you have a different goal in mind. And perhaps part of the reason that you're experiencing relational disconnection and therefore a lack of trust is because you haven't really come to the same goals. You don't really have the same vision for your life together. So that's something to talk about. A second way to think about relational disconnection is to think about the busyness of your life. The busyness of your life. That's a common occurrence of relational and emotional disconnection. And therefore, it's something that stifles trust from growing. Listen, you have to build time for each other into your weekly, monthly, daily schedules. What I've, one thing I've learned is that if I don't build it in, it doesn't just sort of happen. It's just like, you know, physical health. Exercise and physical health don't just happen to me. I don't know about you. They don't just happen to me. I have to, like, actually plan to exercise if I'm going to feel better physically. And it's the same with all of our relationships, but especially our marriages. We get so busy that we forget to even schedule or think about time with our spouse. Some of you work way too much. Some of you, as we talked about a few weeks ago, give your best emotional energy perhaps to your children if you have small children and your spouse is just getting the leftovers. Some of you are obsessed and consumed with a hobby or with work or with something else going on and you need to sit down and recalibrate. A very helpful practical process that Marianne and I don't do every week but we try to do as often as we can is what we call sinking. 
usually on Sunday nights, we'll sit down and we'll pull out our calendars and we just sync. We, we think, okay, what's going on this week? What do you have? What do I have? I have a lot of evening meetings. So we're trying to get everything coordinated and scheduled and build in some time of rest, build in some time where we're hanging out with each other, build in some time to do other important things. Those are just essential building blocks of growing in trust. They're essential building blocks in reconnecting. So busyness of life, thinking about that helps you reconnect. Thinking about a common vision helps reconnect. And then thirdly on this second point, you need to think about unresolved past hurts. Now I'm going to start meddling and not just preaching. Um, Some of us in our marriages are disconnected and therefore not trusting each other because we've never dealt with past hurts. Now these might be in your marriage and they might be before your marriage. Just as an example that I hear pretty often as a pastor, maybe you have a hard time trusting in your relationship with your spouse because your relationship with your mom or your dad or both was messed up and you've never been able to trust them. And you've never really dealt with that or thought through that and and you don't really realize how much it's actually impacting your present relationships. That's an example of a past hurt that is actually causing friction and disconnect in a present relationship. Now, very, very practically, and I say this pretty often here, I think it's super crucial for every marriage at one point or another to go through biblical counseling. When I say you need to go to counseling, don't hear that as we're about to you know, get divorced, we're on the brinks of an absolute disaster. I think every marriage needs that. Counseling isn't the place where, you know, they hypnotize you and do weird things with you. It, it, counseling is so great because what you get is safe space and safe time to deal with disconnect, to deal with conflict, to deal with problems. And you have a trained, godly spectator slash referee <laughs> in the room with you to provide clarity, to provide help. It's been one of the best things that Marianne and I have ever done in our marriage And so that's a great way to begin the process of resolving past hurts in your life and therefore building trust. So how do you build trust? Be honest. Be honest about yourself and be honest about your spouse. Work to resolve past hurts and identify what causes relational disconnection. And then thirdly, lastly, under trust, you've got to learn to fight well. Um, By the way, when I say fight... Depends on what your background is. You might think I mean like screaming, yelling, shouting, lunacy. And that might be what it's, that's not good. I'm not saying go do that, okay? That would be destructive fighting. Fighting is just the inevitable consequence of conflict that arises in your marriage. And that should be happening. When I do premarital counseling, by the way, and I have couples or marriage counseling and a couple says, we never fight. That's almost always not a good thing. Do you know that? That's usually a red flag. Sometimes it can be good, but usually it's a red flag. Usually it means that one or both partners are hiding things. They're they're building up things. They're putting things away in sort of the recesses of their heart and not dealing with them. Listen, you're going to have conflict. If you're not having conflict, someone is hiding and lying. You're going to have conflict, and you've got to learn, if you're going to build trust, to handle conflict well. So how do you do that? A couple of real quick examples. Learn to realize when you're being defensive. This is especially for husbands. Uh, And I say this as someone who very often struggles 
with defensiveness. It's very important for you to work on the skill, the relational skill of being able to stop and listen and acknowledge what your spouse is saying, even when it's very painful for you to hear. You know, the gospel says, if you believe the gospel, the gospel says that these things are true of you. The gospel says that we are sinners that justly deserve God's displeasure. We've rebelled against a holy, created, creating father. We've rebelled against Jesus, our savior. And that plays itself out in all manner of ways in our life. So if you believe that, then you should actually expect at times, from time to time in your own relationship to be confronted with your own sins and shortcomings. So don't immediately get defensive and try to justify yourself. Stop and listen. That's an important part of learning how to argue and fight well. Let it play out in your marriage. So learn to realize when you're being defensive. And then a second helpful little tip for fighting well is learning how to listen and clarify. It's important to respect your spouse's viewpoint and his or her feelings about whatever the issue is, to listen and to try to empathize. That actually generates trust. That enables communication. It clarifies the direction of the conversation. Here's a practical example, purely hypothetical, but a practical example. Let's say uh, you're working really hard as a husband. You've been putting in a lot of hours, and you come home one night, and you're getting ready for dinner, and it's sort of that crazy time at the end of the day, and your spouse says, your wife says, man, I really wish we could take a vacation to here this year, but we just can't ever afford to do things like that. Now, as a husband, it's possible for you to have the shame demons begin to come up from the inside. And perhaps you'll respond by saying, I'm working as hard as I can. Sorry I can't provide everything that you want. Sorry you don't have the perfect life. We can't do it this year. I'm doing the best I can. Sorry. Does that make sense to anyone? Sound familiar? No, just hypothetical, right? Um, that, that's a great example of you know, one party saying something and not intending hurt, but hurt coming from the other. Instead of immediately responding, husband, with, come on, I'm working hard. I'm doing the best I can. Maybe it's helpful to listen and clarify or to say something like this. Honey, listen, when you say, I wish we had the money to do this, it makes me feel like a failure. I'm not saying that's right or wrong. But it makes me feel, what I hear you saying is that I don't provide well enough. And that's why sometimes I get angry and defensive. Can you see how that works? That is much better than immediately reacting as if your spouse is out to get you and make you feel shame. Make sense? That helps communication be generated. It helps trust grow. Okay, so three ways. Three ways to grow in trust based on this Ephesians 5 text and others. Be honest. Identify what causes relational disconnect and learn to fight well. That's how to build trust. Write those things down. Talk about them this week together in your own relationships. Pray over those things. Address those things in your life. Secondly, let's talk about how to build love. If a healthy marriage is growing from suspicion to trust and growing from selfishness to love, how do we build love? Well, we spoke last week um, about how marriage is a picture of the gospel. Because marriage, more than any other human relationship, models or is intended to model the self-giving love of Jesus Christ for his bride, for his people, the church. 
So as the Apostle Paul tells us here, we love and give ourselves up for the other, verse 25. We submit to one another, verse 21, out of reverence for Christ. That's the second movement in the process of health. So practically then, how can we move from selfishness to love? Okay, four ways. And I'm going to try and work through some of these with you here. First, practice forgiveness. Practice forgiveness. Listen, a primary way that marriages build love is by practicing the art of forgiving one another. And by the way, that is how you mirror the gospel, like in real day-to-day life. That's when the boots go to the ground of your relationship with God, okay? Let me ask you this. If people were given an inside look at your marriage, if, if someone had a camera in your that might freak some of you out. If someone could see you in every moment for a week in your life together, would they say that they see a picture of God's forgiving love in Christ as a result of what they've seen in your relationship over a given week? How can we grow in that and work on that by the power of the Holy Spirit? How can we practice forgiveness? A couple of tips. First, worship with your spouse. This helps you be able to forgive. When you're seeking God's face with your spouse, it's hard to harbor anger and bitterness towards them. When you're resting together in the love of Jesus for you, it's hard not to love one another with forgiving grace. When you're in worship and trusting yourself to God's mercy and to God's justice, you give yourself to overcoming evil with good. You'll respond to your spouse with the same grace you have been given when you two are praying together, when you're reading the scripture together, when you're worshiping with God's people together on Sundays. Worship with your spouse. That's one way to practice forgiveness. Secondly, don't use past hurts or sins as weapons in present conflict. Don't do it. That's not forgiveness. Okay, listen. I want you to think about this with me. If you say you forgive someone, but really you stockpile that grievance in your arsenal for use in the next heated argument, you are not forgiving them. Do you know that? What if God did that? Think about this. Let's say we die and get to the gate of heaven and God says, you know, I know I forgave you, but that episode you had with greed in 1987 really, really bothered me. And I'm going to have to rethink this whole thing. What if God did that to you? Is that the way God loves? No. God forgives our sins. He casts them away as far as the east is from the west. If you believe that, if that good news is empowering you, then it will enable you to do the same thing. If we've been forgiven much, as Jesus says, we can forgive much. And by the way, why do we do this? Why do we harbor these grievances? It's exhausting. It's it's not a way that's going to lead to flourishing. Holding all of those grudges is no way to live. It's embattling, and it's not going to lead to health. Forgiveness is a better way. One of my favorite writers, Anne Lamott, she says that not forgiving is like drinking rat poison and waiting for the rat to die. And that's exactly what it is. It's going to poison you on the inside. So, Don't use past hurts or sins as weapons in present conflict, but remember that in the power of the gospel, 
Jesus has forgiven you, and therefore, through the work of the Holy Spirit, you can truly forgive and bear the weight of the grievances that you have suffered or endured from your spouse. You can do that in Christ. And that's one way to practice forgiveness. Secondly, how to build love. First, practice forgiveness. Second, learn to accept your spouse's different perspectives, emotions, and reactions to things. Here's what Marianne said to me. If, if, if we were both the same, then one of us would be unnecessary. Your spouse is not the same as you, and that is actually a good thing. Each of you have strengths that the other needs. And when you, especially husbands, when you're able to see that and actually rejoice in that over time, it gives your spouse a sense of value and self-worth that they are people and not just objects for your use. Can I put it like this? Do you know that you do not have it all figured out? I bet you would admit that. I would admit that. I don't have it all figured out. If, that, if we believe that, then why is it that so often in marriage we believe that our perspective, our feelings, and our reactions is the standard for everything else to be judged by? And if our spouse reacts differently than we react or feels differently than we feel, we inherently believe that that's wrong. Their feelings aren't wrong. Their feelings are just different. And part of learning to love is not just acknowledging those different feelings and reactions, but actually rejoicing in those different feelings and reactions. Your spouse is in your life, in part, to teach you things, to help you become the, your better self, to help you become a more, more wholehearted individual, to, to challenge you to grow. And by the way, who would want to love someone that doesn't see them or listen to them or even try to understand their perspective? That is the essence of selfishness. It's better, perhaps even to assume, that your spouse likely has a better handle on a given topic than you do. So learn to honor and respect their differences of perspective, feelings, and opinions. Thirdly, you work towards love by working to honor one another instead of shame one another. And this one is really, I think, really crucial. What do I mean by that? How do we grow in love by working to honor one another instead of shaming one another? A couple of comments here. First, we do that by giving our spouse permission to feel this, again, is particularly for husbands, not to gender stereotype, but it's, it's a fact. Um, husbands, husbands especially need to hear this. You have to give your wife permission to express negative emotions. She has that right. Don't try to shut her down and ignore it. One way you love her is by living in that with her. That's called empathy. And it's one way that you actually honor her as an image bearer of God and honor the work that the Holy Spirit is doing in her life. Give your spouse permission to feel. Another way you work to honor instead of shame is by avoiding what I'm calling barrages of criticism. You know, it's possible to register a complaint without being critical. Criticism is defined as a personal attack on the character of your partner. So here's an illustration. Here's a complaint. Honey, please don't speak that way to the kids. It's too harsh. Complaint. Here's a criticism. It's no wonder the kids respond to you that way. You're acting just like your father. I can't stand it when you're like this. 
I don't understand why you always are so angry and mean. I am sick and tired of you. Criticism. You see the difference? Criticism only heightens conflict. It doesn't develop loving connection. It develops fear and suspicion. It's possible to be truthful about your feelings without being critical. And one way that you honor your partner is by avoiding barrages of criticism. Third, never show contempt. Never show contempt. Listen to a a psychologist who's written a lot about marriage, Dr. Archibald Hart. Here's what he writes. Contempt takes criticism one step beyond by not only attacking the character of your spouse, but also aiming an arrow right at the heart of your partner's sense of self-respect. What are examples of contempt? Personal insults, mockery, an unbridled and over-the-top sarcastic tone in the way you speak to your spouse. Here's an example. Uh, let's say you're, you have a big work project and your, your wife comes to you one evening and says, Honey, I want to really help you to get through this big project. And you respond as a husband sort of mockingly by saying, Oh, yeah, sure. You'll be a big help. What are you going to do? Are you, you going to help by making scrapbooks like you do with the kids all day? I'm sure you'll be a huge help putting together my executive presentation. You know, that kind of stuff is, it's, it's mockery. It's contempt. And it doesn't generate trust. And what is your wife or your husband going to think? Well, I'm sorry for asking. Do it yourself. I'm going to go watch Netflix. Right? So don't do it. Avoid it. Um, so give your spouse permission to feel. Avoid criticism. Don't show contempt. And then lastly here, and we're going to wrap it up with this. Understand that your spouse is being made new by the Holy Spirit, and that you play a part in what God is making them to be. Do you know that? If you are married, you are most likely the most significant aspect of growth in holiness and godliness for your husband or your wife. And it's a beautiful and important thing for you to see in your marriage that your spouse is not currently who they are going to be. Stanley Harawas is a Christian philosopher, and here's what he says. I love this. He says, we never know whom we marry. We just think we do. Or even if we first marry the right person, just give it a while, and he or she will change. You know, we all marry like three, we've been married to three or four different people, you know. Like your spouse is not the same person they were 20 years ago or 10 years ago or five years ago, pre-kids and post-kids, pre-empty nest, post-empty nest, pre-whatever, right? It's they change. And so this idea that I married the perfect person, well, just wait a while and it's going to change, you know? And, and that's actually part of the glory of marriage is that you have the opportunity to see what God is making your spouse to be through your help, actually, as you guys grow in the journey of trust and love. Here's what Tim Keller says in his book on marriage. Listen to this. Marriage is for helping each other to become our future glory selves the new creations that God will eventually make us. Here is what it means to fall in love. It is to look at another person and get a glimpse of the person God is creating and to say, I see who God is making you and it excites me. I want to be a part of that. I want to partner with you and God in the journey you are taking to his throne. And when we get there, I will look at your magnificence and say, I always knew you could be like this. I got glimpses of it on earth, but now look at you. Each spouse should see the great thing that Jesus is doing in the life of their mate through the gospel.
Isn't that good? When you look at your spouse, look at your spouse if you have one. Can you get a glimpse of their future glory self? Can you see who God is making them to be? You have the beautiful opportunity through your marriage to be a vehicle for them to arrive at that place as a person. What an opportunity that is. And the good news is that Jesus is with us in this by his spirit. You're never alone in your marriage. He is there to help. He wants us moving into trust and love. He's laid out a grand vision for us of what marriage can be. So let's dive into it together and find our lives by laying our lives down. No marriage is so broken that it cannot be mended, but you can't mend it alone. You need the power of the gospel and the work of the Holy Spirit. And no marriage is so good that it can't grow more. The beautiful thing is that the way to do both is the same. Trust in Jesus and work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work. Let's pray.